once you've done your blood tests, you'd move on to doing imaging. So again, depends where the pathology is. But if you are concerned about sacroiliitis, I think it's reasonable to do an x-ray as a baseline. If you have had a patient who's had symptoms for a while, so usually years, you could expect to see changes on x-ray. But if the symptoms are quite early, they've presented quite early, you might have a normal x-ray, at which point you may consider doing an, an MRI scan looking for active sacroiliitis. I, 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 I just add that x-ray is, is quite hard to interpret, maybe for the, the radiologist it's a bit easier, but even then they kind of just say that just get, get, a, get an MRI because it gives you an idea of chronicity, how, how acute things are as well. Yeah. Um, and you can look for other alternative pathologies kind of, whereas an x-ray is, is not... It's not always the best way to, to look for it. And also on, on that baseline, so thinking about x-rays, just x-ray whatever joint is involved. So if it's not just the axial spine and you've also got um, the axial skeleton, sorry, and you've also got peripheral arthritis or peripheral joint involvement, it is always always useful to have a look for any other changes. Sometimes you can get new bone formation. And that's one of the criteria for you know psoriatic arthritis or you can get erosions, which you shouldn't really get in osteoarthritis or something so it's always useful to have a, a baseline because sometimes like you mentioned before you can get a really rapidly disruptive inflammatory arthritis with some of these under you know more so psoriatic arthritis yeah absolutely and then sort of once you've sort of done imaging i think what one thing to add about the imaging sorry to interrupt Sam, it was that the mri so the mri is one lightest or axial disease you'd be wondering you it's probably best to get a whole spine so a whole spine and say graniate joints and you're looking for any inflammatory lesions. So that would be using a stir sequence. Some places, if you write in inflammatory, you know, back pain and what you're looking for, they will automatically do it. Some people don't. A stir sequence is different from your T1, T2. It's a flat suppressed image and it shows you inflammation quite well, to the point where, you know, we can look through the MRI and see ourselves without having much radiology training. So it is a really useful sequence to get. Most places, again, do it automatically, but it is always important to to ask for it because you don't want to have an image without the stair sequence which is effectively not not as good all right i didn't realize that that's good to know and then i guess other tests you might want to consider doing are in terms of trying to rule out any of your differentials and trying to screen for any of the associated diseases or comorbidities that you'd expect with the disease so remember that in psoriatic arthritis you have an increased risk of non-alcoholic fatty liver disease so it's important to check liver function for that patients with uh, especially psoriatic arthritis are at increased risk of hyperlipidemia, for example. So you might want to do a lipid screen and then also think about, you know, investigating for any complications that you think someone might have. So obviously, for example, a chest X-ray or high resolution CT or uh, an echocardiogram for someone with angst bond who you think might have any of the complications we've discussed earlier. So in terms of how to diagnose someone with what you think is a spondyloarthritis, it depends what you think the subtype is. But if you think someone's got ankylosing spondylitis, then you can consider using the modified New York criteria, which gives you an idea of whether it's sort of definite angst bond or probable angst bond. There are other assessment criterias, which I'm less familiar with. For psoriatic arthritis, the CASPAR classification, widely used in the UK, I, I believe. And then in terms of trying to sort of assess the severity of disease and to review progress at later time points, then I think quite typically for ankylosing spondylitis, the BATH criteria is commonly used, the BATH index. So 
the, for example, the BASDI, which is the disease activity index. And that takes into account a number of questions that ask about how severe the patient's stiffness, for example, or pain in the back is from a score to zero to 10 and what their global sort of health score over the past week has been as well. And then for psoriatic arthritis, you can use the the DAS 68 score, but I think Samir, you were talking about a different one, which was more- up, yeah. So we just, they effectively just have a smaller joint count, a tender joint count, yeah. how the patient feels visual analog scale and then the, the physician's perception of the patient's disease as well. And you kind of write, there's no composite number you get at the end, you just write down each individual factor. So, you know, three tender joints, three swollen joints, a score of three out of five physician and patient. And that's, you know, classified as success efficient enough for biologics. So it, it's not a, you know, like a nice score like the DAS or the BAS diagnosis, mm. five or, or six that you kind of have a, com- a combination of everything. Yeah. And it's probably just worth mentioning very quickly that there's an enthesitis index that you can also think about for your patients. So for example, the Leeds Enthesitis Index. So in terms of management, as with rheumatoid arthritis, it's really important that you manage these patients holistically and starting with conservative measures. I think patient education is number one, making sure they understand their disease and the um, implications of their disease, but also making sure they have enough support. So physical, but also psychological support and making sure that you point them to the right sources of information where support is available. So for example, the Versus Arthritis UK website. Physiotherapy is really, really key with especially ankylosing spondylitis. There's also a role for occupational therapy, of course, and hydrotherapy is quite helpful. And then don't forget also to advise patients to stop smoking and to address the comorbid conditions that are associated with Anxpond and other uh, spondyloarthritis. If we move on to medical treatment, So for angst-bond, psoriatic arthritis, reactive arthritis, and not so much IBD-related, non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drugs is usually sort of the the first line that you would consider. And you're trying, obviously, to to dampen down the inflammation. In people with angst-bond, you might need to consider taking one, you know, regularly rather than just as required. And that can be in addition to steroids. But I think... You have to be very careful with steroids. And if someone has axial disease, then there's no sort of clear joint that you could, you know, target for an intra-articular steroid injection. Yeah, we, we, it's, it's more, more so steroids are kind of useful for in a peripheral and uh, arthritis. If you've got a psoriatic arthritis or, or what, a bit of IBD related or reactive steroids, steroids can be a good treatment for the acute severe one that isn't related, isn't responding to NSAIDs. For axial disease, unfortunately, steroids don't really work that well. Probably good because we don't give too much up, but it's best to try with an NSAID. And so the NSAIDs we normally do ibuprofen, naproxen, whatever your choice is, with a PPI, obviously. Like you said, for ankylosing spondylitis, it has to be more of a regular one. So we, we encourage them to take it daily, you know, three times a day for ibuprofen, twice a day for naproxen. And if that doesn't work after roughly like two weeks, then you switch it or two weeks to a month, you know practically speaking, then you switch them over to an alternative one. And that could be an alternative profile or you can go to a, a COX-2, you know, so, so something like Cetacoxib or Etoricoxib. Again, I would still give it with a PPI, less associated with reflux, but I'd still give it with a PPI. They're slightly better, I guess, for pain control, anecdotally speaking. And these are young patients, so you're not going to get the risk of increased uh, ischemic heart disease or, or cardiac events generally. But also you need to make you screen these patients. And then if that doesn't work, then then you go on to what I assume you're going to talk about next. 
Yeah, absolutely. So that's when you would think about escalating to a disease modifying agent. And for synthetic DMARDs, I don't think there's a lot of evidence for the use of methotrexate for predominantly axial disease. You can consider sulfasalazine for peripheral disease, but usually a lot of patients end up having to go to biological treatment. So anti-TNF being sort of the first line for patients with angst bond. But if they sort of fail on an anti-TNF, then there are other treatment Mm -hmm. options available. Yeah, so okay. anti-TNS for actual disease would be that, and peripheral disease, sulfasalazine, yeah. You can try actually uh, methotrexate, so things like psoriatic arthritis, if it's predominantly peripheral, you treat them in the same way you would treat uh, rheumatoid arthritis with con- uh, conventional synthetic. And, but if it's if it's axial, then anti-TNS. And then, you know, you've got a few to cycle through, depending on whether it's primary or secondary failure, which is a bit more complicated, but there are objects out there now. So for... Things like ankylosing spondylitis, psoriatic arthritis, you've got the IL-17 inhibitors, mm-hmm. which is important considering the, the pathophysiology you spoke about before. But you've also got newer things now. So things like JAK inhibitors, which you can use in psoriatic arthritis and in ankylosing spondylitis. Absolutely. And then just a quick mention. So for reactive arthritis, I think it's fair to say that a lot of them are self-limiting, but I think if symptoms are going on for beyond six months, then that's when you might think about starting a a disease modifying agent. Yeah, I'd say six months is probably an arbitrary number um, that someone's made up, but but it's more sort of monitoring them. So most of the time, reactive arthritis, it should disappear once you've got rid of the infection and the immuno overreactivity and you treated that acute phase. Sometimes it goes away and never comes back again. Sometimes seeing the, as you've got that genetic predisposition, your immune system's a little bit primed to, after an infection attacking itself, uh, it can happen again in the future, in which case you just treat each individual episode with NSAIDs or steroids as long as they're not too frequent. If it becomes more frequent or if it becomes persistent, then you would treat it like a normal inflammatory arthritis. So you kind of look at the, the, the course of the disease and if it's something that's really not going away, then treating it as a, you know, starting small, starting with a, a mild therapy and treating it like a normal inflammatory arthritis. Yeah, absolutely. And then for IBD associated disease, you might, so you would tend to avoid non-steroidal anti-inflammatories. And I think it's just important to say that you would need to really liaise with your gastroenterology colleagues about any tre- further treatment options. Yeah. Lovely. Thank you very much. Great. Thanks. Thanks, Anna.